Hi, I'm Maeve Doyle and on this week's Private View we're talking about photographer Terry O'Neill. Terry passed away last year, so the stories that are being told are London stories and they come from Dylan Jones, editor of GQ and author, also OBE, and Lenny Taylor, who took the knowledge in the 80s and knew Terry O'Neill from the Mayfair Orphans. Have a listen. I think you'll enjoy this London story. Terry O'Neill left school to pursue a career as a jazz drummer, but ended up working at a photographic unit at Heathrow Airport. And it's there that he captured a picture of then Home Secretary Ralph Butler, who was immaculately dressed but fast asleep on a bench. For who knows what reason, but like a perfect storm of circumstances. There was a journalist from Fleet Street there who, who talked to young Terry, and he was working on Fleet Street the next day after they bought that picture. Uh, Terry O'Neill says he was raised primarily in air shelters in Heston. He's known as someone who personified charm, and I've spent time talking to drivers, uh, people who put on other shows with him, uh, people who knew him. And now we'll talk to Dylan Jones about Terry. And he was someone who made people feel comfortable and at ease. He he was a disarming EastEnder who uh, interviewed people like Paul Newman, Michael Caine. Uh, he wasn't in the business of shattering egos, and he never set out to demean or find a bad angle on his subjects. He only wanted great pictures. He never saw the point in trying to undercut people or, or expose their frailties. He was, he was the definition of a gentleman. He never had an ulterior motive. He wasn't in, interested in the darker interpretations of his subjects. So there's a wonderful story where Terry was going through an airport in Malaga and he found a drugged and collapsed Brian Jones from the Rolling Stones. Nobody knew who he was. He was just there in a state of drug-induced coma-like situation. And Terry helped him out and got him on a plane and never took his picture. And it's a, a sign to how moral and conscientious Terry is because he, he wondered if he did the right thing. He felt slightly responsible that when Brian Jones was found dead that he didn't take the picture as he hoped that maybe it would show him what drugs were doing to him. I mean, that is heartbreaking. That just makes you want to shed a tear. So in terms of the photograph, Terry was discreet and polite, but he liked a tightly cropped headshot, a warm light on the face. He went for the statuesque glory pose and always shot from a little below the head, giving the subject a sense of an imperial presence. His favorite medium was black and white photos, 35 mil. Portraiture was what he was known for. He did 
everyone from Ava Gardner to Winston Churchill, royals to politicians. Another story about someone who archives pop culture um, was his photograph of a pregnant Sharon Tate days before her murder. Terry was invited to the infamous party where the Manson family killed Sharon Tate and everyone else at the party, and he didn't go, although he was very social because he had a grievance with someone who would be in attendance. And it kind of makes your blood run cold when you realize how one or two choices in life can change everything. So that picture is incredibly important. We knew he toured with Elton John. He had uh, pictures of Laurence Olivia in drag, Richard Burton in a bathtub. Uh, his wife and Academy Award winner, Faye Dunaway, on a chaise lounge at a pool at the Beverly Hills Hotel, wearing a peach satin robe the day after she won her award. Uh, he married Faye Dunaway in 1983, and they adopted a son named Liam. And uh, Faye Dunaway has a strong reputation as someone who's talented but difficult. There are cliches around the film that Terry O'Neill produced for his wife, who he was painfully in love with. Mommy Dearest ruining her career. Terry acknowledges that it ruined her marriage. For once in his life, he put someone ahead of his career and he wanted to because he was in love with her, he says. She was vulnerable, shy, and underpaid, and he became her manager, increasing her asking price by 300% and producing, setting aside his career and producing Mommy Dearest. For such a driven man, to take a subordinate role seemed odd. Uh, he found someone who was worth slowing down for, and it, it all collapsed around him, and he ended up back in London from Los Angeles at the age of 47, in debt, alone, and starting all over again. Along with a, a group of friends known as the Mayfair Orphans, Roger Moore, Michael Caine, Dougie Hayward, I think he most, and the man who owned Tram, they found work for Terry, and he climbed out of debt, he found a new love, he uh, created his London life again, and started to have exhibitions, uh, taking care of the negatives of his photographs, because you have to remember when Terry started taking pictures, Photography wasn't an art form. It was a job. Terry O'Neill came from a generation that asked, how, how do I make art rather than how do I make it? These were people who were interested in thoughts and ideas and culture. Because they're a generation who lived through the war, they didn't think of things like being a billionaire as such. He really wanted to embrace culture and this, this, theme of being a jazz drummer followed him through his life. It made him quite modest about his work as a photography. He said things like you could see through to a person's soul with the camera. And 
A few interesting facts. He photographed the queen twice and he made her laugh. He made her laugh by knowing that she liked horses and he told her a racing joke. He said she was the best model he'd worked with because she takes direction beautifully. He also told a little bit about people who wouldn't cooperate with him. But the reason they wouldn't cooperate was because they were shy and couldn't communicate with the camera. And although he was a great fan of the man, he really didn't enjoy photographing Robert Redford. Robert Redford couldn't communicate with the camera. So Terry went to the army and and, uh, wanted to be a jazz drummer, but initially thought he'd get a job with BOA and be an air steward. Isn't that a crazy story? I don't ever hear anyone saying they want to be an air steward. But the point was he wanted a means to flying around the world. So in his career, he was looking for adventure. Uh, He lived near the airport. And um, as I said earlier, he got a job at the Daily Sketch because he found this picture, found this picture, like a ready-made of Reb Butler passed out in the lounge, the departure lounge. The other thing you might not know about Terry O'Neill is he also was going to be a Catholic priest. He was picked out early in life as someone who was distinguished by the priests. Uh, The problem is Terry didn't believe he was... He was of the school that if you could, you could only believe things that you saw through the human eye. And he needed proof there was a God. To go back a little bit, he was brought up in the air raid shelter around Heston. He says he was a lonely little boy and that drumming was everything to him. I get the idea from what I've heard that he was raised by a single mother. And it was at the dawn of the 50s when he began his career. He was the first person to photograph the Beatles. Then he photographed the Stones. Then the Dave Clark Five. Uh, you know, once they they grew up, they discussed, they all sort of were together discussing what they do when they grew up because they didn't think they would make a living as a photographer or playing in a band. So these... People, the Stones, the Beatles, the Dave Clark Five, Terry O'Neill, thought that they were just having a bit of fun. It's quite amazing. It's quite amazing when you think about it. There's a show coming up, an exhibition coming up at Maddox Gallery in Stad and hopefully in London. And there'll be some unseen pictures and some that you may or may not have seen before. Pictures of Audrey Hepburn, who Terry O'Neill says was modeling with him, posing for him with the camera, when a bird flew onto her shoulder. And he was amazed that she didn't spook or startle, but she turned her head in such a way to compliment the bird. So it wasn't scheduled. And Audrey was so skilled and so present and so in control of her physical being that she held her nerve. And as a result, there's this great photograph of Audrey Hepburn with a bird on her shoulder. Uh, It became more interesting to me when I heard the story that Terry told. There's some of Audrey Hepburn in a swimming pool. There's the one of Bridget Bardot with a cigar. Another great story. 
there were apparently men everywhere watching Bardot, who was another great model, loved the camera, posed beautifully, and could act natural with everyone watching her. There's David Bowie and Liz Taylor, which was, uh, Liz was a delicate creature and, and suffered from anxiety and nerves, and Bowie was Bowie. Terry had worked with Bowie and the dog on album covers. and uh, The charm on the screen of Bowie and Liz, this great picture of her holding her cigarette to David Bowie's mouth, and he's embracing her. She's wearing his hat. Just this great moment of intimacy. Wonderful pictures of Elton John, who favored Terry O'Neill as his photographer. Frank Sinatra on the boardwalk. David Bailey and Jean Shrimpton. Kate Moss. Muhammad Ali. Michael Caine. Paul Newman. Richard Burton in the bathing cap. Roger Moore monkeying around. Yeah, it's going to be such a great show. Uh, Terry had a regular driver named Lenny Taylor. And Lenny's been, uh, it took the knowledge in the 80s. Lenny Taylor took me on the routes. He took Terry O'Neill and the Mayfair Orphans on. And I caught up with him on the weekend. And he told the story of Terry and the Mayfair Orphans and London of Yesteryear. Have a listen to this great audio archive of the Samuel Pepys of London's Black Cabs. Hi, my name's Lenny. I've been driving a taxi now in London for the best part of 37 years, uh, having picked up many interesting people, uh, one being uh, Terry O'Neill, the famous photographer. Uh, picked him up many years ago from South Street, which I think is where he lived, and later on from there, picked him up from Battersea, uh, Prince of Wales Drive and took him up to George Restaurant in North Audley Street, corner there of Mount Street. Uh, engaged in conversation with him and he was telling me that he was going up to George to meet who he called the Mayfair Orphans that consisted of Michael Caine, Dougie Haywood, uh, Roger Moore, uh, Mickey Most, the record producer and himself and I was intrigued by this story and he continued telling me that the story all the way up to Mayfair and he said that uh, they get together on the first Thursday of every month and one of the orphans pick a restaurant up whether it be George where I was taking Terry O'Neill or to Scott's opposite Dougie Awood's um, Taylor's who was also another Mayfair orphan or even to any of the ma major restaurants in London and one of them out of the orphans would pick the bill up so one of them would take the rest of the, the, the gang out um, on the first Thursday, I think it was, of every month. This particular time, I think it was Michael Kane who was one of the orphans. His day was at George's in, in Mayfair, and they were all meeting up, and Michael Kane was going to pick the bill up for that particular lunch. And the following month, one of the others would pick a restaurant and take the other rest of the boys out, and then they would have a, a lunch picked up by the, the person who chose the restaurant and uh, it was an ongoing thing and because I think they'd all lost their parents over the course of years because they were elderly men themselves by this time uh, they named themselves the Mayfair Orphans who who chose it out of that I don't know but 
I always found it a very, very interesting story, a typical London story, because they were all working class men uh, after the war that chose and became very successful in their chosen professions. Michael Caine, Roger Moore, obviously, film actors. Terry O'Neill, who was the first, really, of his paparazzi. I remember him telling me that he started out working for the Daily Sketch newspaper and he was commissioned to go to Heathrow Airport and basically take photographs of any famous people that were coming through any of the terminals. He then was then commissioned by the Daily Sketch to go and take the, the first photographs of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And we had this conversation, as I say, all the way from Battersea up to George's uh, restaurant, or George Restaurant as it's called. And um, it was uh, intrigued me that they were all very successful in their own line of work. Dougie Haywood being a top tailor, Mickey Most being a, a very, very successful record producer with Rack Records in St John's Wood. Terry O'Neill, obviously, very, very successful photographer. And the two, as I say, Roger Moore and, and Michael came extremely successful, but all working class people. And um, I always found it a fascinating story. So, you know, there you go. So here we are now outside uh, Dougie Hayward's um, tailors that's now unfortunately closed down and it's now another shop which is directly opposite Scott's restaurant in Mayfair. Dougie being one of the orphans along with Terry, Johnny Gold, uh, the owner of Tramp Nightclub, Michael Kane, Roger Moore and the rest of the boys, Mickey Most. And he said to me, Terry, that they used to meet at Dougie's uh, shop in, in, in Mount Street, uh, Mount Street here for sort of drinks and gets together in the lounge at the back of the shop. It was like a, a tailor's come social club uh, for those sort of, for, the, for that group of people. Anybody that came to London that needed a nice suit made, they'd go to Dougie and obviously the, you know, a few of the boys would turn up and they'd, they'd have drinks and laughs and drinks at the back of the club. Uh, it closed down a few years ago now. I remember, I think his daughter took the shop over for a, a short amount of time, but um, she obviously passed it on now, and it's now looks like a ladies' uh, clothes shop. Um, I remember from the eighties when I started driving a cab, going past there every time, seeing Dougie, and you always used to see somebody come in and out of one of the orphans, and um, yeah, and so, sadly it's it's closed now. It's and it's passed on. Terry always, Terry well yeah, when I remember, I, I fortunately I picked Terry up on maybe one or two occasions by random uh, and he was a bit like me, not very tall, but very, very dapper, very smart, clean cut. Um, how you would describe him as a very dapper sort of man, very smartly dressed, like all of them really, they were all smartly dressed fellas. But, but uh, Terry, he just always looked, whenever I saw him, he was always... Um, you know, very, very, very tidily dressed and uh, well groomed, and um, a, a very nice, you know, very down to earth, easy to talk to. Kept his feet on the ground. You know, there was no snobbery about him. Typical working class sort of fella who's done well, and 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 kept himself in in that sort of uh, in that sort of uh, time and that. So uh, yeah, very nice. I think he wanted to be. I remember listening to an interview with him on the, one of the radio stations, and I think, had he not become a photographer, I think his ambition was to be a jazz drummer. 
Uh, he wanted to be a. I remember him saying, "What would you have done if, if because." When I spoke to him about the career, he said when he when he got the job from the sketch uh, to go and uh, go to Heathrow to take photographs, as I said before, of, of, of anybody famous or interesting who came on off a plane, he never thought it would really be a, a, a lifelong job. And he's he's I think his his true vocation was to be a, a jazz drummer, but obviously that didn't happen, and he became uh, you know very very successful. Uh, he married Faye Dunaway. Uh, he knew Ava Gardner. Uh, that introduced him to the Hollywood side of things. So he then met Frank Sinatra through Faye Dunaway and then uh, that. And uh, he was asked by Frank Sinatra to go on tour, which he's got many, many, many pictures of in his albums of Frank Sinatra. So there was a boy there from sort of working class background, elevated into you know the Frank Sinatra world of uh, travelling on private jets to different venues and being asked to take photographs. So that, that gives you some idea of how well-respected he was in his in, in his chosen profession. And uh, if anybody looks at any of his books, I mean, the, the, the photographs he's taken are just uh, just fantastic photographs of anybody you can name. I think he's took a photograph of nearly everyone. Paul Newman, as I say, Sinatra. He's got books on Sinatra and... Um, Fantastic. I mean, really interesting, but and an interesting life, you know, for for a boy who after the war just picked up a camera and and went with it. So you know, great story. What about Terry in London? Do you think that like is there a London story there as well? I think there's, there's a big about the qualities of the Mayfair orphans that tie into London. Well, yeah, I think there is a big story there because you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, Michael Caine and, and Terence Stamp they sort of shared digs. They were Dan, you know, Dan and their luck. They they weren't big actors, nowhere near it at that time. I think Michael Caine out of that group of people got his big chance with Zulu. I think Terence Stamp went on to do and become a very successful. But I think Michael Caine was the first of that lot to be elevated into stardom, but. Um, Well, it, it's hundred percent true because when you talk or you listen to Michael Caine, there he he always says that they were the first group of people, working class people, to break that barrier, which there was a barrier, and he he says even up and even up to now that them them sort of people like the Bob Hoskins and the Michael Caines that 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 push the wall down and, and come through to become very very successful people, they were the ones really that opened the door for well. Bob Hoskins always says that, that Michael Caine was the one that pushed the wall down for him to come through and become a, a working club. And, and probably the only one of today's people would be someone like Ray Winston, a working class fella who's elevated himself up to quite high, high acting standards. So they've got a lot to Michael Caine to thank for that because, he, as I say, him and Terence Stamp pushed push them boundaries and, 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 and open the doors up for these people. But it's a, it's a good working class story because they were all come from, you know, very, very poor, poor backgrounds after the war, you know, really poor backgrounds. And, and, and they've sort of picked themselves up and, um, you know, I just don't know. They've just made themselves really good in all their chosen and reached the top of every one of their professions. They've all gone to the very, very top, which, Back in the the thirties, forties, and fifties, would have been a really hard thing to do, and and Michael Caine never ever changed his his way of talking. Uh, uh, 
Terry was no Terry O'Neill. Never he was. He, I can imagine him. He, he never put any airs and graces on. He he, he he talked as he would have talked had he'd have been a jazz, as I say, jazz drummer, a photographer. Had he been a cab driver, he would have he would have just been Terry O'Neill. It was no no side to him at all. He was just. Um, that's difficult to say because I mean anyone who takes photographs, you know, you take holiday photographs, and maybe out of three or four hundred photographs, you'll find one. There's a knack to it, as an art of when you look at these photos, and if you look at any top photographer, Bailey and Terry O'Neill, they capture something that other people. It's a gift. I, I would I would class it as a gift. It's not an easy thing. I well, it's, it's not just to pick a camera up and take a photograph and get that quality of photograph that Terry O'Neill could capture. You know, I've been to a couple of his uh, gallery uh, showings at galleries because he, he fascinated me as as a man and as a person because of where he come from to where he got to. So, but how, how you can take a photograph like that, I think that's, I think you're just gifted, you know, like if you can write a song or whatever, or if you can act... It's a gift. You're, you, you're, you've got that in you. And do you think it's partially his personality? Because he would have been dealing with difficult people. And in your profession, you deal with difficult people. Is there something about someone's personality that can get along with everyone? And is that a London quality? Um, I think that is. I think you know because of, you know driving a cab, you you come across over the course of a day, a week, a month, many many different characters of different personalities. You know. And and Terry said uh, that you know not everybody that he fo- photographed was easy. Some people were very easy. Some people could be very stroppy, you know. But he had that way of. Uh, he, I, I only met him on a few occasions and spoke to him briefly, just driving him from A to B in the cab. But um, he had that quality of a calmness about him, you know, very quietly spoken man. Um, he, you know, I don't think he would have took much nonsense. I think he had a limit to his patience to how far these people could have pushed him. But I think they warmed to him because of his sort of cockney charm that he had, and his 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 demeanour, the way he was very very calm man, and he wasn't a big man, so he wasn't aggressive looking. He's just a very very calm man, and I think that's just the quality of where he come from, and he appreciated where he got to in life. Uh, I went to one. Uh, I went to one off of uh, Park Park Walk in Fulham, oh, probably eight nine year ago. It was a free exhibition, and I parked the cab up, and uh, I read about it somewhere that the exhibition where it was in Park Walk, and I parked the cab and I went in there, and uh, it was on two floors, and it it was just great photographs of, as I say, all all of all the ones of Sinatra. No, he wasn't there. No, it was just a lady uh, looking after the, the gallery for him. And you could just walk in and want Miranda about and look at the photographs. As I say, it was on the two levels of a, of a, of a gallery in Park Walk, full of, off the Fulham Road there. And you could just walk in and have a little Miranda around, look at the photos. And um, fantastic. I mean, he's, you know, he's got a lovely photograph, which is very, very famous, of Paul Newman in a cowboy hat, pair of jeans and cowboy boots. I think he's standing with Lee Marvin. And it's just it's, you just look at it, you just think, what a, you know, what a great photo. How, how did you capture that? You know, fan, fantastic photograph, one I always remember, and I've seen it many times in places. And the rest of them were just you know classic Terry O'Neill photographs. You know, Do you have a favorite? Uh, that one, I think, that Paul Newman 
the Paul Newman with 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 uh, Lee Marvin is just I don't know it's just the way that Paul Newman's standing there casually in a pair of Levi's and a, I think he's got like a denim shirt on uh, and and Lee Marvin standing next to him and they're just sort of if I remember just sort of leaning against the wall but um, if you could. We're ready to go to Tramp and we're off now to the Terry O'Neill and all the boys would, uh, wherever they were in London, they'd end up uh, at Johnny Gold's club in Tramp and uh, have a good time, I should imagine. Uh, Johnny, I read the Johnny, I picked up Johnny Gold's book uh, on my way to holiday once at, uh, at Gatwick and it was just called Tramp and it, and it was Johnny Gold's book on all the different characters of... The, the the time I'm going back to the sort of I think he opened up Tramp in '69. Like Very similar, York, yeah. yeah, similar to Studio Fifty Four. This was the this was the go-to club in London in the '70s and the '80s when I started driving a cab. You would always be asked to go to Tramp nightclub if you work nights, and it was always a certain person because it's a, a strict membership club and you had to be, you know, nominated. You couldn't just walk up to the door and get in. Um, and Johnny Gold and anybody, or any Sinatra, George Best. I took George Best there many, many times to tramp in the eighties. Um, anybody who was anybody go there. And Johnny Gold rang it, uh, run it with a guy called Oscar. Can't think of his second name, but it was Joan Collins's sister, Jackie. It was her husband. He was the partner with Johnny Gold. And uh, as I say, it was the it was the place to go to if you was in London, you know. And um, Old school. It's still there today. It's still there, you know, up to two two thousand and twenty. So if you think that it was opened in sixty nine, it gives you some idea how long that club's been there. When you think of all the clubs that have opened and closed over the years in London, to still be there all, all them years later is is you know nearly fifty years later is quite a testament to what the club is. And um, as I say, I don't think Johnny Gold owns, owns it anymore, but he was um, he was a big part of the of the orphans along with all the other boys and as I say another working class guy uh, built himself up got into the club business made the club the most successful club in London probably one of the most successful clubs in London maybe only second to Annabelle's if not in front of Annabelle's and uh, another working class guy who reached the top of his profession in the nightclub business bit like where we are now Dougie was a top tailor and Terry top photographer Mickey Moe's top record producer, all all top of their field in 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 what they chose. You know, fantastic story. And and the orphans, the Mayfair orphans. It's just it's just a, a I think it's just a great great story. And you know, there should be a a book written about them as as a, as a as a unit of people. Uh, I, I I personally find it a fascinating uh, insight into old London, in the you know, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, when they was reaching the peak of their careers. They was all the top of their at the top of their game in the 70s. They were all famous for their individual work. And um, great people, you know, interesting, fantastic people, I think, anyway. So here we are now in uh, the famous German street uh, outside the Tramp Night Club that was owned by Johnny Gold and Oscar Lehman, who was married to Jackie Collins, uh, the sister of Joan Collins, um, Terry and all the rest of them, Michael Caine, Dougie Awood, uh, Mickey Most, 
would frequent the club and as being a part of the orphans with, with, with Johnny Gold would come here. And uh, it was a club that I think I read in his book that was respected for privacy. So all, any star of the time that, w- that would be in London would come here, be it George Best who was always here. Uh, I'd actually picked up many years ago, I picked up Shirley Bassey from here one night, took her to the Savoy. She was performing at the festival all the following evening. Uh, as I say, any but many, many footballers used to come here of the 70s uh, and, and it was a place where people people would come and not be bothered with the paparazzi. Uh, they weren't allowed in as far as I remember reading in a book so they could come here, let their hair down, get up to whatever they got up to in a nightclub and had a good time and not have to worry about finding themselves in the paper the following day. Um as I say, it was it, it's a, a different a different period now. I don't think Johnny Gold owns the club anymore. It's um, it's still here, obviously. It's still Tramp, uh, but you're going back to a period of the seventies and eighties when it was the place. You know, if you worked if you worked on a Friday or a Saturday night in London, as I did a few times or many times, um, you would always be asked to go to Tramp nightclub, and inevitably, as you'd, you'd see. While you was dropping off and getting paid the fare, you'd see somebody that you would recognise going in there. You know, Frank Sinatra, if he was in town, would would, would come here after he it was at the Albert Hall, wherever he was p- performing at the time. And anybody who was anybody would really have to be seen in Tramp. And and, and I remember talking to to, to Terry and. And he said that, that you, you could be sitting at your table in Tramp and you never knew who was going to come down the stairs, uh, you know, from, from any walk of life, whether it be, um, I remember uh, in in the, the 70s, uh, he said that Vitas Garolitis, the, the tennis player, who I think he got beat by uh, Connors in one of the Wimbledon, fi- uh, Wimbledon finals, he would always be in here. And as I say, it was one of those places that if you was in London... In that period of the 70s, stroke 80s, late 80s, it was the place where everybody who was anybody would, would, would have to come to. And uh, it just must have been a fantastic place to be. And uh, as I say, Johnny Gold uh, owned it with uh, with his partner and made it probably the most successful club in London uh, to date, really. I mean, you've still got Annabelle's, but I think Tramp is... And you would walk past it. You, you, if you didn't know it was there, you'd literally walk past the door and uh, didn't, didn't know it was there. Very uh, unassuming sort of doorway with just a simple word tramp above the door and downstairs. And apparently it wasn't very big. So it must have been quite a, quite an evening. But then again, one of the orphans. So fantastic. On today's show, we have Dylan Jones, OBE, and editor of GQ magazine since 1999. He's won over 40 awards in this position. What's interesting is Dylan graduated from the Chelsea School of Art in Central St. Martins, and so he's got a background seeped in in art knowledge. Apparently, he studied graphic design. In 1983, he became the editor of ID Magazine. In 1987, Arena, he continued while doing those things to be a contributing editor for The Face Magazine. Biographies are his passion, and while he was writing, editing magazines, he was writing short stories about Jean-Paul Gaultier, Nana Cherry. In 1999, he was hired by Condé Nast. He started an initiative called GQ Man of the Year Award. In 
In 2013, he was awarded an OBE. He has had David Cameron on the cover of GQ. He hired Boris Johnson to write as a contributing writer to write about cars and his passion for cars. He worked with David Bailey on a project called Heroes in Afghanistan. He's a, a person who is strongly supportive of the infamous Hay Festival. He's written books about Jim Morrison, Paul Smith. There's a book called Mr. Jones's Rules for the Modern Man. He wrote a book on David Cameron. He wrote a book called When Ziggy Played Guitar and Four Minutes That Shook the World, a book about the 80s, one day, one decade, a book on Elvis, a book on Terry O'Neill, a second book on David Bowie. And The Wichita Lineman is the most recent, Searching in the Sun for the World's Greatest Unfinished Song. I'm so honored to be here to talk to Dylan Jones about his work with Terry O'Neill. Dylan, it's Maeve Doyle. How are you? Thank you for being on today. Pleasure. Spent a lot of time reading about what you've been up to, and you're the kind of person who gets things done. How many lives have you lived in one life? <laughs> not, uh, not enough. <laughs> so let's start in the beginning, enrolling into art school. What about, you and I are roughly of the same generation, so what about going to art school, Chelsea School of Art, on the King's Road, St. Martin's, uh, prepared you for this life that no one could have imagined. When I went to art school, I went to art school, I went to Chelsea School of Art in 1977. And all I really knew is that I wanted a life in the creative arts. And I think lots of people in their teenage years, or indeed when they start pursuing further education, higher education that they have a very strong idea of what they want to end up doing and actually I didn't all I really my I had very short-term ambitions rather stupidly actually all I really wanted to do was go to art school because I was sort of obsessed with the idea of the creative spirit and was in enthralled to people like Andy Warhol and David Bowie and I wanted to go somewhere where I could express myself, I suppose, like lots of people do. I mean, these days, everyone goes to college and it's, um, you know, it's an accepted part of growing up. Whereas 40 years ago, if you were applying to be, uh, or if you were interested in going to art school, there were very, very few places available and very, and not, not that many people wanted to actually pursue it. So it did feel special in a way. I agree with you. And I think at the time we were, we were interested in things like how do you make art? How do you paint? Rather than how do you make it? And that's in a, a few words, a very different way of operating from that time to this time. Uh, would you agree? I think it's more, of a, it, it's, it's more of a process now. I think on the one hand, it's like the internet. The internet is great because it allows you to do everything and it, and it allows everyone to have all the knowledge in the world ever. But it kind of ruins that sense of discovery, I think. Uh, I mean, it makes it quicker, but I think that back then, 
if you wanted to pursue particular ideas and you wanted to go down rabbit holes, you really kind of had to work for it, you know. And I suppose the other thing is that now art, the creative world, the creative arts, the sector, the creative sector, it's more understood, it's more channeled, and it's more structured, which again, I suppose is good. But part of me feels that that sort of creative entrepreneurial spirit has, is not as exciting as perhaps it once was, but that's probably a generational thing. It sort of ties nicely into Terry O'Neill as well. I, I know you've written biographies about Jim Morrison, Paul Smith, David Cameron, David Bowie, and, and Terry O'Neill amongst others. I mean, we talked a bit about, I talked a bit about the Wichita linemen, which I'd love to talk to you about again. But I guess what I'd say about your work with Terry is, what about, what was it about Terry as the man, about his aesthetic, about working with him? Do you think that kind of distinguished him and his his pictures because clearly it wasn't Terry's ego that was driving him forward. I think that if you, if you speak or if you know a lot of people who first became famous in the sixties, they all say a very similar thing, uh, whether they're a photographer or a musician or an artist or an actor, they all thought that it was fleeting and when they became famous or notable or when they first started having success they all thought it'd be over in five minutes so they made the most of it and even though lots of people look back upon that time and sort of fetishize that time and it's become uh, an incredibly important part of britain's cultural history i think that lots of people who were involved in it at the time were just making hay because they didn't think it was going to last forever. Terry was certainly like that. And getting to know Terry, which I did about 25 years ago, I got, got to know him very well. I think Terry's USP as a person was he, that he didn't take himself too seriously. I mean, he, he may have done when he was younger. I didn't know him when he was younger, but I somehow doubt it. Because on the one hand, I think he realised what a, uh, how incredibly lucky he'd been. And on the other... I think he genuinely treated what he did as a craft. I mean, I've, I've known lots of photographers and I've known lots of photographers from that period. And some of them can be quite precious because they look back up upon those days, that sort of, that, uh, those happy accidents of being in the room with people who were at the formative stages of their career or were having an incredibly important effect on the culture. But Terry was always quite blasé about it and in 1990, I think it was 1998, I spent a summer with Terry doing his archive for the, for the Sunday Times magazine. It took months. And literally, I would turn up at his studio in his office in South Audley Street. And we'd have a coffee and we'd chat and we'd talk about the football and we'd talk about what we'd seen on television or who we'd been out to dinner with the previous night. And then we'd start trawling through his boxes. Um, and it was absolutely chaotic. And he had uh, cardboard boxes, all tins, um, things shoved into cupboards, all of this extraordinary material. Uh, and it was, uh, I was doing it 
because we were doing a, a huge series in, in the Sunday Times and we kept finding more pictures. So I think in the end, this series probably lasted for about two months. There were film stars of every persuasion. There were um, uh, musical people, sportsmen, politicians, all of this stuff. And I think, it's, I think it stems from the fact that when he started, he was basically someone the, the tabloids sent along to London Airport. I don't think it was even called Heathrow then. They sent him along to, to London Air, Airport to take photographs of famous people when they arrived in the country on aeroplanes. And it's a pretty en entry-level uh, job, really. Because then there weren't really paparazzi in this country. But his job was to turn up. And so when your Brunner came into the country or Bridget Bardo or someone, then he would... He would take that picture and then he started taking pictures on set and I think a lot of people are quite disparaging about Terry because they said well he had access he had access so he was in rooms with Clint Eastwood and Paul Newman and Lee Marvin and all these extraordinary people and he just took pictures of them but yeah but you can say that about lots of things and lots of people who were lucky enough or smart enough to be in the same room as other people and you look back upon those pictures now and they are real uh, they're, they're real testaments to their time. It's an extraordinary archive. There's something about Terry's character that wants to elevate the human spirit. There doesn't seem to be a mean bone in his body. I'd say that was true. I think that um, uh, there are some photographers who you work with who you know you're going to probably get something quite extraordinary out of, but they're difficult to work with. Terry was never difficult to work with. And I maintain that this is probably one of the reasons he had such a, a long career. Because you can either be, you can be brilliant and successful and difficult. You can be average and successful. Um, but the thing is, if you're a difficult person and the, and the light shines off you and you, you're no longer interesting or successful, people won't work with you because they, the, re, the only reason they were working with you is because you delivered. But if you're not cool anymore, you're not delivering the work then who wants to work with difficult people? Terry was never difficult, ever. I saw him lose his temper, but only about sort of very practical things. Uh, and as you know yourself, he, he didn't have a, he wasn't a narcissist, and his ego didn't demonstrate it in the way that it does with a lot of photographers, which I think was, was why that uh, people didn't particularly take him seriously for a period of his life. But I think that his archive now is as, it's as good as anybody from that period. It's, how would you distinguish his pictures? I know there's a close cropping of headshots. And, uh, could you recognize, would you recognize a Terry O'Neill just by the hand and the lighting? And uh, some something of them. signature? I think that the, um, he did a lot of pictures for the Sunday Times in the 80s and 90s and noughties. And I'm not a great fan of that work because it was mainly studio based. It was color and it was slightly too formal. I much prefer the stuff he did on movie sets. I much prefer the stuff um, he did when he was not out of his comfort zone, but things that weren't so tightly controlled. Um, having said that, he took what is certainly one of the most important photographs um, about Hollywood that's ever been done. I mean, I know it's, it's called it and it's a cliche and, and lots of people have prints of it or postcards of it. Um, 
Oh, the build-up is eat. killing me. I know where you're going with this one. <laughs> I mean, I've got... The build-up is great. I'm, and the Academy Award goes to... Exactly. Well, the Academy Award goes to Faye Dunaway. And even though that picture is staged, even though the component parts are very carefully controlled, it says more about Hollywood than most photographs ever taken. Um, I agree. And you have one. Did you say you have one? I've got one. I've got one above me at the moment, actually. A yeah. beautiful print that uh, um, I got from Terry, I don't know, years ago. But it's, um, it's a very important picture. It's very clever. It's I agree. Smart. I agree. If, if, if Terry had never taken another good picture, he would be remembered for taking that extraordinary photograph. I agree. And the personal, the professional, the Beverly Hills Hotel, the peach satin robe, the look of the after Oscars, the story just is endless in that picture. I love it and as well. I agree with you. And it's perfect. Um, and I know there are lots of versions of it. And as I say, I know that it was sort of um, slightly set up, but it's all true. Um, that, that photograph is as good as anything that Slim Aaron's ever did. So we're talking about Faye Dunaway after winning the award for Mommy Dearest, which Terry produced. He was married to Faye. The photograph maybe is best, but those times were, from what I understand, the hardest times for him. He was outside of London. He was not taking photographs, but managing Faye's career. And it wasn't an easy time, but the artwork he made through that was incredible. This, I mean, I've been reading more and more about him. But for instance, uh, this idea of him being invited to the Sharon Tate party. Uh, then I interviewed a driver, a cab driver, who used to drive Terry and Michael Caine and Roger Moore and Dougie Hayward and Mickey Most, I think it is, and the guy who owned Tramp around on the first Thursday of every month as a group they called the Mayfair Orphans. Have you heard about the Mayfair Orphans? I used to have uh, lunch with the Mayfair Orphans all, all the time because when we were doing the archive 20, 25 years ago, um, Terry would always want lunch. He wasn't, I mean, he's like me in that, that respect. I like eating lunch at lunchtime. I don't like eating at funny times of the day. I want to eat lunch when I want to eat lunch and Terry was exactly the same and I loved that and if I was faffing around with something or if I was going to be like I said I'm going I'm going now and he would just literally put his coat on and he'd, and he'd go to we'd either go to the Barclay Square Cafe or we'd go to Scott's the old Scott's possibly somewhere else and we'd go George? along and we'd, uh, no I don't think George was open then um We'd go, and, we'd go around the corner and we'd sit in, in Dougie Haywood's store and we'd have a chat there with Dougie and maybe Michael Caine would come in or Roger Moore or Johnny Gold and then we'd go off and, and, and we'd have a bite to eat. And, and just being, I would always say as little as possible because I just wanted to suck up this extraordinary atmosphere of these amazing men who'd led, led amazing lives, just sort of joshing with, with each other. I remember that Dougie... Dougie Hayward had a lovely assistant called Audie, who I think now works for Anderson and Shepherd. Uh, she was terrific. She, um, she was obsessed with fashion magazines. And I'd go and sit in, uh, I'd go, go and have a cup of coffee there with Terry. Uh, and we'd be chatting to Dougie and 
Bordy would go out and buy fashion magazines. If there's a new fashion magazine, she went abroad. She brought it, she'd always bring it back to the store and tear all the advertisements out. And I said, why do you do that? She said, well, I walk to and from work. She, 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 she lived in um, Putney. And she said, they're lighter to carry if I take all the ads out. Extraordinary woman. <laughs> very, very nice woman. Um, and practical. And very practical, yeah. But Terry was a funny, he, he was very funny. You know, he was a funny person. He was very entertaining. He was good company. He was a, uh, a nice person to be with. Did you ever go to Tramp with them? No. I never particularly liked Tramp, actually. And also, it's not really my generation, because they were slightly older than me. Well, considerably older than me, actually. But um, that wasn't my thing. But I love Johnny Gold. He was someone else who was very, very entertaining. And they, and they had a glint in their eye, too. And they'd obviously been up to, you know, very... They've been up to lots of naughtiness, and um, but they were just really, really entertaining. Terry was telling me that he bet the first time he took Viagra, he said, uh, "I think, I think, I can't remember. We were having lunch, or we were." He said, "Dylan, I want to tell you what I did last night, right?" And he was telling me, and he, his, his arms were sort of going, pushing in front of him, like he was sort of like he was sort of patting a sofa or something, like he always did. And he'd been out to dinner with his girlfriend and I think this is right um can't remember who he was with and even if I could I wouldn't tell you but there were four of them and they were going out for dinner and someone had just sent him some Viagra from the states when you couldn't get it over here and they're and they're having dinner and they're, and they're about to go home they're about to, to to finish the meal pay and go home so having been sent this Viagra they take the Viagra him and his pal and then just as they're leaving, one of their girlfriends says, oh, I think we should go to Tramp. And Terry looks at his pal and thinks, well, this is, you know, this is, this, this is going to be strange. Because obviously, Viagra, <laughs> Viagra, Viagra doesn't it, in, increase your libido or, or more sort of um, interested in sex. It, it, it's, a, it, you know, it, it's like scaffolding. So he said that they ended up going to, 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 to trap him, him and his pal walking around sort of cross-legged, um, <laughs> unable, unable to stand up because they were in a particular condition. Well, I always found very, very funny. But t Terry... That's Terry so could, good. He could, Terry could tell a Terry could story. tell that story, yeah, without yeah. offending anyone. How wonderful. Yeah, I, know, I, never saw him, uh, I never saw him be rude to anybody, eh? And even when he was being frustrated or somebody was not allowing him to do something, he'd do what he'd do the sensible thing. He'd say, okay, fine. And then he'd find another way to do it or do something else completely. Nice man. Really nice man. And a great photographer and an interesting life story, a London story. And I've got a sense from Lenny Taylor, the cab driver who drove Terry around that he treated people equally. Everyone was the same. Everyone was treated well. That's true. And it wasn't, it wasn't done in a lovey way. And he wasn't being patronizing. Uh, it was true. And he was very, um, he had a very nice manner about him. And also he was quick. <laughs> I remember another photographer uh, who was slightly more difficult than Terry. I remember we were shooting a celebrity once. I think it was GQ. Um, and I saw him afterwards at something and uh, I said, how was it? And he looked sort of a bit weary and he said, quick, <laughs> because what, what a lot of people forget is that when you are a famous person, when you are talent and you are in a situation 
and that situation is uh, could be short and long, you always want to go for the short option because it because it's work. And actually, when you ever, whenever you were being photographed by Terry, and I was photographed by him a couple of times, he was quick. He wanted to make it fun. He wanted you to have a good time, and he wanted it to be over because he knew it was work. It was work. It was a craft. He didn't consider it to be art. That's such an important distinction. Well, it is. I mean, I've got a picture, another picture that Terry gave me of, it's one of the classic pictures that he took of David Bowie when they were doing the session, which would then turn up as the, as the basis for the Guy Pilar illustration on Diamond Dogs. And I remember when I found this print, when we were looking through all this stuff in South Audley Street, and it was a beautiful print, and I picked it up and I went, oh my goodness, that's amazing. And I wasn't saying it in a way to make Terry give me this print. I was, I was literally overawed because I'm a huge Bowie fan. I'd never seen this particular frame before. And it was a beautiful print. He just picked up, he said, do you like David Bowie? Do you like David Bowie? And then he signed it and gave it to me. And um, big deal, he gave me a print. I mean, but it was such a nice thing to do. And Genuine, my point yeah. is that he didn't, um, you know, he didn't number it. It wasn't done. It wasn't part of an edition. I mean, some people say that he was too sort of laissez-faire and wasn't, um, didn't control his work enough. And possibly that's true. You could say that's, that's, that's true. And I think that Robin Morgan did a very good job towards the end of his life of, of sort of, um, of um, professionalising it, or at least his business. But um, I think that You're was... You're talking one of the, about the edition sizes and the negatives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I actually think it was... Um, it was, uh, uh, it, it was sort of nice that, that Terry didn't do that because, as I say, he didn't treat it as art. It was just, he was a smudger. It was just work to him. It was life that mattered to him and, and your relationships with people and the, stuff, the, the, the issue of controlling and turning it into money and archiving it. That was a business person's realm. And yeah, I got that sense from Terry too. And I, I've not met him. So I think, I think there was a romanticism about Terry O'Neill. Yeah, I, 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 I think you're right. He was more interested in, not that he was disparaging about his work or not that he didn't take his work seriously, but he wanted to have fun. It was part of the, that, um, very corny, but 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 um, very important phrase: the rich tapestry of 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 life. It was a component, and actually talking to Terry and being with Terry was very in, it, it was very infectious, and it was um, it it was fun because it kind of it made us realise that the industry that we work in is is, is I mean just, I mean it is full of appalling self-important people, um, and Terry was not one of those. <laughs> Is that a good place to end? We've kept you longer than we said we would. <laughs> that was it's, wonderful. It's, well, it's very nice talking to you and um, good, luck, good luck with the program. Thank you for your time, Dylan Jones. Keep disseminating the best culture and congratulations <laughs> on yourself. Please come back again sometime soon. I'd love to chat more. You've been listening to A Private View with me, Maeve Doyle. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye for now.